So this morning we are entering into a new teaching series here at Covenant. It's going to be a series that's going to take us through the next six weeks, uh, and it's entitled The Journey Continues. This is going to be a series where we're going to spend these six weeks looking at the opening chapters of the book of Acts, the story of the birth of the church, the story of where this movement of Jesus followers started to uh, move out into the world around them and impact the world around them. And my hope is that both for us as a congregation collectively, but for us individually, this is going to be something that uh, taps us in with the essentials of faith. And when we talk about the essentials of faith, it's really the essential parts of what life is about. Because there was something about the early church that wasn't perfect. And we never, when we talk about the early church, we never want to like romanticize it like it was better than any church that's ever existed before. They had controversies. They had votes on things. They didn't disagree on everything. There were schisms. There were all the things that makes the church lovable still today. They were present back then. But we also have to be aware of the fact that there was something about their faith and the way that they were living and doing their life together that was, as Andy Stanley writes, irresistible to the world around them. There was something about that early group of believers that without any seminaries to train leaders and without anybody who uh, you know, could post apologetics videos on the internet so that uh, the world would hear the truth and without uh, consultants and all the things we look for, none of which are bad, without uh, kind of a printing press and the mass uh, pr production of ideas, something happened through those early believers, the likes of which the church has never seen again in all of the hundreds and hundreds of years since then which is that there was this explosion of the gospel into the surrounding world. And the world has never, ever been the same since then. It exploded in all different kinds of ways. And, and, and there was no strategic plan. Like when you think about that from in less than 300 years, it went from this kind of outlawed little sect of Judaism that was kind of based in Jerusalem. When I say based in Jerusalem, it's because the people who were in hiding just happened to all be there after the crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, and Jerusalem is not what we think of it today. It was sort of this, uh, this, this sort of uh, pathway to trade with other parts of the Roman Empire. It was just there. The only value it had is so people could pass through it to get to the, the more valuable places in trade within the Roman Empire. And it went in less than 300 years from this little outlawed sect there to moving out into what we now know as three different continents, into Africa, into Asia, and into Europe without any of the assistance of the things that you and I normally think about as being necessary. There was no strategic plan for evangelizing the Roman Empire. There was no, like, if we do these five things, then it's going to happen. But what happened and what took place was that as they lived, there was something so irresistible about their living that other people where they lived, worked, and played were coming up to and going, what is that? Where they went to school, it was like, what is going on with you? They were different than the world around them. And I hope that in this series, that you individually, and that I, and that we as families, and that we as a church family might get a little bit more in touch with what that irresistible thing was. Because when I think about, I'd like to live that kind of life. I'd like to live the kind of life that other people look at going, what is going on with that sort of depth and richness to what's happening in your existence? Because I would love some of that. I would love to know what those things are and how we tap into them. And that's my hope as we do this series over the next six weeks, that we would get more in touch with what those essentials are, okay? 
Now, when we study the book of Acts, there's a few things before we read the text for today that we just want to kind of use to sort of set the context for this book. Uh, we're going to bring uh, a, a few points up on the screen. The first is this. The author of the book of Acts, and we just need to know this, background information is Luke. And if you're like, well, that's a coincidence. We've just studied this guy, another guy who wrote the book of Luke. Uh, in six weeks, must have been a common name. I don't know if it was a common name, but it's not a different Luke. It's the same guy. The same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke wrote the book of Acts. Same physician. And there's things we need to know about him, right? I want you to keep this in mind as we read this. Luke was a physician. He was educated. As he wrote in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he said, I'm writing to uh, a kind of a patron named Theophilus. Uh, in writing to him saying, I'm giving you an orderly account of what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's recording it more like a modern historian. And that is how the book of Acts is written. Luke is writing to Theophilus again in kind of this, uh, this very uh, orderly sort of way, laying out the events of how the early church started, all right? Number two, it's written as the second part of a two-part series. And we're going to read that today, okay? So when Luke wrote part one, it wasn't like it was a bestseller, the gospel. He's like, you know, okay, well, let's do kind of the reboot 2.0. Here's the book of Acts. He intended from the beginning, kind of wrote them both at the same time, like a two-volume set. What's important about this for us is that we need to remember as we've studied the Gospel of Luke over the last kind of six months, we need to have this in mind because, because it's important when we read, for instance, on Pentecost that Peter next week preaches and a couple of thousand people come to faith, we need to remember who Peter is. That a few weeks before, he had been denying Jesus three times when Jesus was in his need. So we can't romanticize these people when we remember the context of the book of Luke, okay? We got to keep that in mind. It's the second part of a two-part series. All right, number three. It traces the church from a Jewish sect to a global movement that includes Gentiles, all right? And this is important, too, because we see that this understanding of the gospel caused controversy. The church had to figure out how do we deal with non-Jewish people who start uh, uh, wanting to follow Jesus? What do they need to do in this? Now, that doesn't sound very controversial to us, but some of what's important about it is we see that the church had to wrestle with stuff at the very beginning. They didn't all agree on things at the very beginning. Again, we can't romanticize the early church and what we're going to talk about because they were trying to figure stuff out. But we see in the end this expansive and inclusive gospel that is bigger and bigger and bigger and it includes people from different backgrounds, it includes people from different languages, it includes people from different kind of ways of being and, and cultural understandings of, of God and faith and how it works. It's, it's, a, it's an expansive rather than a restrictive view of God. And that's really set the tone for how the church is called to operate today. So that's number three. Lastly, the book doesn't end. Now, we're only going to read the first few chapters of the book of Acts, but I encourage you maybe this summer to read the whole thing. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really important um, thing. But one of the things you'll notice if you read the entire book is that Acts is 28 chapters, but it doesn't have an ending, really. Like, if you read all the way through chapter 28, it just, like Luke's writing, and he just stops. Like, the other books have kind of a sum up, or this is what happened, or, you know, everything else, which is natural when you write something. Luke, it's like, just stopped in the, at the end of a sentence. It was like, yeah, I'm done, right? And, and, and it's kind of weird when you're, the Apostle Paul is in Rome. He's been there two years. He's waiting trial. You don't know what happens in the trial. We don't know where it goes. Like, just, it just stops. And while that's different, there's power in that. And the power is that the book doesn't end because you and I are a part of the story. Luke writes this in a way going, I don't want you to think we're tying this up with a pretty bow at the end, but when Jesus, like we're going to read about today, is talking to the apostles, he's talking to you and I. You see, Acts is not just 28 chapters. You and I are writing chapter 29 right now. The story continues in us. The book is not meant to end. 
It's, the, it's our story now and the story of the church around the globe today that's still being written, okay? So as we hear about this, you are being, this isn't like in history this happened this way. This is being addressed to us here today, okay? So this is just a little background on the book. The passage we're going to read today is from chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 11, and this is what it says. That's how the story, how Luke begins. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote all about, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And he replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing up toward heaven. Suddenly, two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, I pray that we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. Meet us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in these 11 verses that we read, there's sort of two distinct sections. The first are the first five verses, and in those five verses, Luke is just making certain that we're all on the same page about how the gospel of Luke uh, went, right? He's like, this is about Jesus. Jesus uh, taught, he rose, uh, he was crucified, he rose again. This is his story. Does everyone understand this is his story? Are we all on the same page? If you've ever binge watched something on like Netflix, this is the part when you watch a new episode of a show and it says like, like, like I've watched recently The West Wing and it's like previously on The West Wing and it gives you a 30 second little sum up so that as you begin the current episode, you're like, right, that's what happened and we're all on the same page. The first five verses are Luke going, as previously recorded by Luke. Here's what happened. Now we're all on the same page. Verse six, boom, we move into the action, okay? What I want us to focus on is the second half of what we just read, verses six through 11. Because if we're honest, there's a ton of pretty crazy action that's taking place in these six verses, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11. And it feels a little bit like it deserves more than six verses, right? I mean, in these six verses, some pretty crazy stuff happens. You have Jesus. He says to the disciples uh, that the Holy Spirit's coming. They say to him, uh, is now the time when the kingdom's going to be reestablished, the permanent you know, kingdom here on earth, which is a fairly big question to ask. And Jesus is like, nope, and it's not for you to ask that. It's not for you to know the time uh, or the place. That's only for the Father. But you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. And here's your command. It's the only command I'm going to give you, so you really need to write this down well. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, to everyone you ever meet, your job, the only thing I want you to know, the thing I need you to remember is that you are to be my witnesses. Great, 
Is there a strategic plan for that? No. Is it following Robert's rules? Is there a second to the motion so it carries? No. He's not asking. He's just like, no, this is what you're supposed to do. I give no clarification on how you're supposed to do it. And then as that command is given and the weight of that is sitting on them, all of a sudden he starts floating into the sky. <laughs> he starts being lifted up. And just going, Jill was talking about it this week, and she grew up in, in Florida, and she said she imagines like when people would watch the space shuttle launches, right? It's like going up, and everyone's just staring in the sky. And it's like, can you still see it? Does he have a telescope? And still see it? And it's like going. And then, if that's not enough, these two heavenly beings then appear who are standing with the disciples at that point and ask them, what are you looking at? Which feels like a fairly obvious question at that point. It's like the guy floating up into the sky, who, by the way, 40 days ago was dead and rose again. And if that wasn't enough, now levitating into the sky. And, and then they say, the, the, the two heavenly beings go, okay, that's great. It's time to stop looking up in the sky now. It's time for you to go back to where you're from because the action is now here. There's, it, it seems weird how much, it feels like this should be six chapters and give some details about this instead of six verses. But there's a power in what Luke is saying here, and it's the reminder of what these two heavenly beings say to the disciples, which is, church, it's time to stop looking up. It's time to stop waiting. You are now being sent out into the surrounding communities where you live, work, and play for your life to make a difference. And what are you supposed to do? Well, the only thing he says is, you are to witness to me. You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, which I know fills many of us with a ton of excitement. Right? Because we live in a time, and it maybe is true of all times, but it's true today, where this is a really tricky thing to know how to do. Because we live in a world that asks us in society in all different kind of ways to separate our private faith and our public life. And you can believe what you want to believe in your private life, but that needs to stay there and don't start bringing into school or into work or into your neighborhoods or into school boards or anything else the public part of this, right? And so when he says the only thing you're supposed to do is to be my witnesses, that can be really, really hard to know what that means. There are people here that I've spoken with that are part of our church like, I do not like this idea. And it's because they have been a part of seeing those Christians for whom this is like a mandate and I am shoving it down someone's throat and this is going to happen and the only way is a full frontal assault and I'm going in and I'm taking Jesus and somebody's taking Jesus out of here. I don't know who it's going to be, but somebody's taking Jesus out of this place today, whether you like it or not, because that's what I'm about. We've seen those Christians, and there's a part of all of us who is probably going, I don't really want to have to be that guy. I don't really want to have to be that person. Because it seems like in many ways they can do more harm than good in drawing people towards Jesus. But I also know people in their workplace who are here who feel like, and some who have, suffered because of talking about Jesus in public places. And that's real. I know people that struggle with this because there is also the idea of like, I don't know the answers when they start asking me questions. Like if I start talking about this and they're like, okay, well then why is suffering in the world? You're like, I don't know, right? What if they ask me things that I don't know the answer to? Or what happens if I start talking about Jesus and start witnessing to him and the response of people, and this might be very valid, is who are you in your life to tell me how to live mine? Like I'm probably not the most moral person in my neighborhood, 
how in the world am I supposed to be the one telling other people what they're supposed to believe? I mean, this is a complicated thing. It's a complicated thing in all times. It's a complicated thing in our culture today. And yet, what we do with that is most of us go, so I don't have to do that. I, I, you know, I have the gift of hospitality. <laughs> That's not my gift, which is a convenient way. It wasn't that Jesus said, hey, there are going to be like 3% of you that are called to witness to me. The rest of you just be hospitable. He looks at his followers and says, you are to be my witnesses. And there's something in that when we talk about a deep and irresistible life in faith that's all wrapped up in that. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be his witnesses? Well, I have to get over my my own hurdles with that. I, I remember one time as a seminary student going to a conference on witnessing on evangelism, and it was, it, was a, it was quite the conference. It's what you think of as a conference, right? There was this speaker, um, and, and, and he, was, he, was, he was tall, and he had great hair, and he spoke with this radio voice, and he seemed just like really, like he spoke, and you're like, I want to listen to that person, right? Uh, and, and he had lots of degrees from fancy schools, and he had written books, which means he knows what he's talking about, right? He had written lots of books on witnessing, and he was fired up. He was fired up in this conference, and I was sitting there as a seminary student going, I guess this is what we got to do. And he started in in the same way in his talks. I mean, this was a whole day-long conference, and he began by telling us, like, listen, you got to do this. Yeah, I mean, it was like a football coach. you gotta, you got to run through that wall, guys, and boom, like into the, into the gates of, yeah, and you know, go into it. And this is, you got to do this, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, and it's going to cost you. It is going to cost you relationships. It is going to cost you friendships. It is going to cost you things. And the question you've got to ask is, do you love Jesus more than those people? Who are gonna try, is your faith strong enough? Are you willing to jeopardize those relationships because you are so passionate about Jesus? And so committed to following him. Because this is something that we've all got to do. And it might make people uncomfortable. It might even make you uncomfortable. You've got to do it. And God is watching as you do that. You also need to be ready to answer any question that might be asked. Before you do it, you need to be schooled up. Why is there suffering in the world? I can give you the three-point answer as to why there's suffering in the world. I don't know why there's suffering in the world in so many places today. But apparently you've got to know the answer tied up in a little ribbon before you ever go and talk to anybody about faith, right? And then the last part that he said was in his last talk, he was like, and the last part is you've got to inspect your own life. And I remember this phrase because he said, because you need to be living a life that's worthy of being a witness. Now, for me, that was the best part of the conference. I was like, cool, I don't have to do it then. <laughs> I don't have to do all the hard stuff because it's going to take me like four decades to get my life straightened out to be worthy enough to be a witness. So I'll spend my time doing that, which I genuinely want to do, and then uh, the other people who are worthy of being a witness in this room, they're the ones who get to go have the divided relationships and all these people who hate them. Maybe you've had some experience that's somewhat like that in your life. The amazing part, as he spoke with so much passion, his hair would never move the whole time. It was, <laughs> it was great. It was, it was so great. And, and here's the thing. Um, I've never written a book on anything. No one's asked me to. On witnessing or evangelism or anything else. But as I've gone on in life and in ministry, uh, and just my own faith... I think that that guy was 100% wrong. Like, absolutely wrong. 
And it makes sense on the surface when you think about what he was saying, because it's like, hey, that's what leadership is. If you're going to call someone to do something, you got to be willing to live it out yourself and get your own life straightened up before you just start asking and telling other people what they're supposed to do. So in kind of a worldly way, it makes sense, right? That's what kind of makes it convincing of what this is what witnessing looks like. You're worthy to witness. The fact is, this is a two-part series, though, in Acts that looks back on Luke. And the question you've got to sit and think yourselves is, is which of the disciples in the Gospel of Luke showed that they were worthy of being a witness? Like, it's not just that I disagree with them. It's not biblical. Like, Peter, who he's talking to, like, days earlier, hours earlier, had denied Jesus three times in his suffering. Had that made him worthy of being a witness? The other disciples weren't even close enough to deny him. They had just, boom, they were gone when the forces came to arrest Jesus. They bickered, they fought, they wondered who was the greatest one. Jesus had to rebuke them from, like, at what time did they become worthy of witnessing? Think about what that word means. We had a definition. A witness, when you look it up, it's a person who experiences and recounts an event. That's what it is. It's not a lawyer who's meant to present the compelling argument. It's not the judge and the jury, and often we as the church forget that part. A witness is someone who experiences an event and then recounts it. Witnessing looks a lot like when Jesus heals a blind man in the Gospels, and the people, the Pharisees then ask the blind birds, like, how did Jesus do this? And he's like, I don't know. I was just blind, but now I see. And you start realizing that what we're witnessing to is not Christianity as a self-improvement plan. We're witnessing to the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is how Jesus comes to us and loves us and showers grace upon us when we're worthy and when we're not. That's grace. That's the power of grace. That's the beauty of grace, is that it's not about when I earn it or deserve it, and Christianity just being this thing that I show off and that I got to be a champion for Jesus. Witnessing should never have you and I as the heroes of the story. Witnessing may often look like we don't know what we're really doing, because lots of the times we don't. And witnessing might look like times where we are more confessing our incompleteness. And then we say to people, when you see that, can you imagine how good God must be that he still keeps showing up in my life and shows me favor? How amazing is our God? As John Newton wrote, to save a wretch like me. And that, I don't know about any of you, I am uniquely qualified to tell that story. A couple weeks ago, Mark Roberts was with us, and he was talking about how do people live their work and their faith, and he talked about, for example, a company in Iowa. He talked about this on Saturday morning in the sessions we recorded that we're going to make available for small groups in the fall, but he said that there's this company in Iowa run by Christians, and it's done, it's like a multi-billion dollar company. They build like these big farm equipments and large industrial construction stuff, and he said they were trying to figure out how does it mean, what does it mean that we're Christians here running this company, and so one of the things that they've done is that when you go into the lobby, because they have like MBA students, and they have like people that want to come learn what they're doing, and they have, you know, it's like, they said that we have the story of our company from its inception and all the things we've done, but the last section is the section, this huge section on their mistakes, on the things they've done wrong as a company. And he says that all the time the people who come, they're like, why do you have that section? And he's like, 
it opens up possibilities of going, because we're not the champions of this story. Somehow we're caught up in something bigger than ourselves and we're doing our best. What would that look like for you? What would that look like for you to tell stories of the goodness and grace of God even when we don't deserve it? I got to experience this uh, a few weeks ago, and I hope that when you hear this, you don't hear my story or experience, because I live in a different context as a pastor than many of you. I want you to hear this about your, uh, wonder what this means in your life, but I hope you can apply it. But I also tell you this because it involves all of us here, okay? Um, One of the things that I get to do from time to time that I love getting to do is to go and speak in different settings, and I enjoy the process of that. I try not to do it too much because I love being here, but I think it's a good thing for me. I think it's a good thing for me to get out and see how other people are doing worship and what they're thinking about. Uh, I think it's a good thing for Covenant to be out there from time to time and not just kind of sitting in our own walls of how things work. John and Jill uh, do things like this as well, and uh, usually that works a certain way, and that means that there's like a theme of a conference or something else, and they invite you to come and speak to kind of point to this bigger theme. And it's this great thing. It's like what we're doing here now, like speaking like this. But this conference last month that I went to was different. And the conference that I went to last, night, last month, uh, there wasn't a bigger theme. We were the theme. It was a conference that was built on church growth, about missional witness, and they had heard about the things, organizers that were happening at Covenant, and they contacted us, and they, they asked me, they're like, would you be willing to come and to represent Covenant and to use it as kind of a case study of, in this time where churches are in such decline, this growth and this thing that's happening there? And I said, yeah, like, you can be a, a kind of spokesperson for your church, and if that makes you uncomfortable, it already happened. Sorry. Um, <laughs> And I never really, I had not done many things like that. And it's weird. It's different when you're going and doing that. And then uh, as I was going, and for the people who had registered, they sent out an article about us. And some of you may have seen this. It was an article that was written uh, about churches in Austin that are thriving. It came out from Duke University and Duke Seminary. And, and we had posted on our website. And in these churches in Austin that was writing about, we were one of the churches featured in there. So that was sent out to all the participants. And like all these things, and this kind of da-da-da-da-da. And you're going and everything else. And then we come to the conference, and we're all there, and we get in this room. We have like two days together. Covenant's going to be dissected. I'm going to be dissected. We're going to talk about this. And the way that they do this, and it's not not bad, but you got to see how this works, is that they started talking about you guys. They started talking about Covenant in the introduction. And they were like, this is this church in Austin, and it's exploding, and it's growing, and the city is different, and debt's been eliminated, and they're giving more money away, and, and trying to be a good neighbor, and all of these things are happening. Now, again, all of which are factually true. They weren't making any of it up. And we have to be aware, there are really good things happening there, happening here. But they, when they were saying, they're like, and then like, all oh, this, and this, like the city is different, and everything else. And I was listening to and going, that, I'd like to work at that church. <laughs> it's like every time they gather, when they gather, it's like, oh, there's tongues of fire above everyone's head and this transformation. And what they're doing is they're setting up going, this is why this church is being featured. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. But do you see the subtle parts of that, that all of a sudden the story's about us and what's happening here? And then, guys, I got introduced. I didn't know this, but I am awesome. I am incredible. They were describing me in ways that it's like, uh, and they talked to a couple of my friends about me or pastors, and they're like, these are the words describing me. He's a decisive leader. And I'm like, 
I got a list of 18 things right now I don't know what we're supposed to do with. And, you know, and they're like, this is happening. And, and creativity and, and, and pushing the envelope. And this church that's growing after planting a church. And all this kind of stuff. And I was listening to it all going, I would love to meet that guy. That guy sounds incredible. And more importantly, my wife would love to meet that guy. My wife would love to meet the person that they're describing. He sounds amazing. And so when they finished, they're like, why don't you give us some opening remarks? And I felt like if I didn't start levitating like Jesus, I was going to disappoint people. And so I said, listen, I, this is different than how I was going to start. But I said, um, God is doing great stuff at Covenant. God is. God is doing great stuff at Covenant. And it's cool to be a part of. It's special to be a part of. You should know, I said, I said, but covenant's issues have issues. <laughs> like, we've got all kinds of things we're trying to figure out the answer to, that we're not certain what's going on. And I need to tell you, for me, I didn't sleep well last night because I'm stressed out about some things going on in the church that I'm not certain what to do with it. Sometimes the only thing I feel a decisive leader about is that I'm indecisive on what we're supposed to do. And beyond that, I'm an amazingly selfish person. And all of you should know that. My self-centeredness in my marriage and what I leave daily for my wife to just sort of handle or clean up is astounding. I have a spiritual gift in it. (laughs) I can be impatient with my children. And I don't mean eight years ago and now it's better. I mean like this morning. And if God can work through me, then you all should be filled with hope because God can work through you as well. I have no idea how people felt the conference winner if it was worth spending money on. I did have one one attendee who looked at me afterwards and was like, I've never been to a conference where the speaker spent so much time trying to convince us he shouldn't be speaking as, (laughs) as you did. But here's what I felt. Usually you think about what do the people attending the conference leave when they, here's what I felt. I felt hopeful myself because in going through all of this, it's like, yep, that's us and that's me. And oh my gosh, these facts are right. And how good has God been to do something like he's doing in and through covenant, in and through me. And for all of the things that I couldn't sleep about last night because I'm worried about how they're going to work out, that God who's been working in miraculous ways through broken people like me and broken people like you is actually going to be the God that sees us into what tomorrow is. And I can't tell you a story of a four-point mix and stir recipe to grow your church, but I can tell you that God has been alive in our midst, and I believe he's going to see us into whatever tomorrow has for us. And that is a story I can tell, and do so with joy. And so can you. This week, I invite you to think about 
how God has showed up in your life and shown you favor and shown you blessing and shown you grace and showered you with loves. And if you have the chance, you might share that story with someone else because I'm not certain our society wants bombastic Christians to just charge the gates to tell people what they're supposed to believe. But I do believe that our world and our culture is hungry for a God who when we get things right and when we don't says, I am with you, I love you, I am with you on all times, and you are somebody, whether this world tells you you are or not. I think that is the God that's irresistible. And that's a story you and I can tell. Not by being courageous, by being honest and letting the Spirit do the rest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We ask this day, Lord, that you would be with us and teach us, show us what it means to be your witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Austin, Texas, this country and this world, may we be willing to tell your story, the good news of what you are doing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.